thanks guys for taking the time to talk with me about this film. I had a chance to see it and I was just blown away by what you guys were able to do with this incredible plot, this story that you guys were presented with. When you guys were first approached about the project, how much information did Dan uh, Trackenberg, the director, give you? Was there any references, any style guides of where to go besides the script and kind of everything that was presented to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, Dan, uh, immediately upon meeting him, uh, Dan and I, you know, we hit it off. We were, we were both um, very much interested in a lot of the same things, a lot of the same films, and uh, we're both play video games and uh we have a lot of things in common so right off the bat there was kind of a a common language and um you know we talked about you know movies we love and we you know movies that have sounds that we love and and uh you know for all the high concept things that there are in the movie dan definitely had uh initial thoughts and and direction and he was always um full of ideas um uh, but the great, the greatest thing is that he was never locked into those ideas. He was always uh, ready and willing to listen to any idea that anybody else had. I think all of us kind of, we all grew up in the same kind of movies as well. So that was that was a, a good connection just to be able to, to have sort of a, a aesthetic to, to, to all draw from that was kind of unified in some way because we'd all grown up watching the same films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was sort of a th- thing... I remember talking to him, you know, in the very, very, very beginning about some of the movies that, that we both had enjoyed. And he actually was, you know, even talked about the first Cloverfield film back before we even knew this was going to be called a Cloverfield film. Um, <laughs> you know, which is kind of funny how that all comes back around. Um, so that was, I think for me, that was the first connection I made with Dan was just sort of talking about movies that we both liked. And you can see it in the film itself. I mean, you know, I think it's safe to say, Robbie and Lindsay, you probably agree that the, the film has, there's like some shades of Hitchcock in there, there's some shades of Spielberg in there, um, and obviously, you know, it has a modern sort of vibe as well. It's definitely not, it doesn't feel like an old movie in any way, but even something as simple as starting the film with, you know, a couple minutes of just music with these big sweeping shots um, not only gave this film a lot of scale, but it also, it's, to me, it totally harkened back to the Hitchcock kind of vibe mm-hmm. and it sort of sets the film up aesthetically in a certain way that I think is really useful for where it goes. The thing that was really interesting I'd say just with Dan's background I and mean, coming from doing I think the last thing that he did was this, the portal this short film The No Escape which was this really incredible stylistic kind of taking the, the world of portal and making it into this kind of short narrative you know for him what were the references that he was trying I mean the title is Cloverfield Lane but you know how much of that world that was set up in the previous film actually even carried over to this. Is there any, you know, relationship in terms of the soundscape that you guys were using? You know, they're they're totally different uh, kind of premises and locations. So there weren't, uh, with the exception of uh, you know uh, only a, a moment or two in the movie, there were there were not a lot of uh, opportunities to to do those sort of uh, c- uh, connective uh, tissue uh, sounds. We did have some fun sneaking in some sounds from Cloverfield, from the first Cloverfield, into the, the the final scene in the film, which, you know, I guess at this point it's okay to give away some of the stuff because hopefully most people have seen the film by now. But, sure. you know, the film sort of, the film pays off in a way that maybe people didn't totally see coming, um, but the film gets, you know, suddenly it sort of cracks wide open at the end and becomes sort of a different genre of film that's maybe a little bit closer to what the first Cloverfield was. So we thought it'd be kind of fun to, to 
to use some of the same source material to make some new sounds for the um, the monster creature ship thing that's flying around at the end of the movie. Uh, and, you know, it has a sort of similar scale in terms of, you know, it's this big mouth and it's, you know, screaming at her and making sort of, you know, guttural sounds and that kind of thing. And so I gave Robbie some of the material that we had recorded as source material to make the creature voice in the first Cloverfield film, which was a lot of, uh, made a lot of from musical instruments, kind of like um, the original Godzilla film. That was sort of my inspiration for that. So we actually recorded upright bass, double bass kind of stuff, um, you know, sort of playing weird semi-musical things and, you know, sort of trying to make it speak almost and have a vocal quality. Um, And Robbie took that stuff and twisted it around to make some new sounds, which was funny because he made this one sound and I heard it and I was like, Robbie, that sound is the best sound ever. We have, like, we have to try to make more. And, and no matter what we did, we couldn't figure out how he had made this new version of, of, of a Cloverfield sound. Uh, you know, we tried reverse engineering it like for a couple hours and we could not figure it out. So we, we ended up with this one sound that was like, that's it, that's, that's the sound. You know, and so we ended up taking that one sound and sort of bending it around and twisting it around in various ways to create some different vocabulary for for the monster. So it doesn't just always sound like, you know, you're hitting the same note on a keyboard. I mean, something that's really, I I think, unique about this film is that it really takes place in this one underground cell, this underground space. And for you guys, you know, I think sound was playing into this film a lot more than I think if there wasn't all this activity maybe going on outside or if it wasn't this type of film. But I think what you guys were doing, it was kind of calling for, you know, what was the kind of ambiance that you guys and Dan wanted to kind of uh, set as the kind of like room tone of the space? Right. Well, you know, in the story, there's there's several parts throughout the film where in the script it says, you know, what what's happening outside or uh, what you would be hearing. So, so, like from a design standpoint of the story, it was very much leaning on sound to to help to help us um, uh, during the first, you know, the two thirds of the film. Each each room we wanted to ha- have a unique sound signature to it, so you kind of knew where you were just by listening to it. Um, and uh, you know, the way we approached the you know, or the way I approached uh, early on, you know, I did a lot of work uh, for the Avid Tent Mix, and so we lived with kind of a version of all the ambiences and the, the way the bunker sounds for, for um, several months during editorial. And then when we uh, started to get serious and get towards the mix, and then once we finally got into the mix, we uh, got kind of a direction uh, of like, okay, well, you know, let's kind of make more of this. And we don't have to be so exactly uh, on the nose with what we're hearing. And, and, you know, a lot of the movie is, uh, based around the tension that you're feeling uh, at any given moment or that tension being released. And um, it was so uh, awesome to, you know, work with Will and, uh, and you know, really kind of create some of those these textures that, you know, we could weave in and out uh, to make you feel uh, more tense or less tense, uh, relaxed or, or whatever it might be. Each room kind of has its own thing going for it. Yeah, that's something we really wanted to try to do is to to be able to to shut your eyes and listen and to to be able to tell what room you were in. Um, 
so that mostly means you know picking like a signature sound for each room that's that's fairly distinctive um, and we did that sort of in in two ways we, we we had a sort of higher register sound like let's say like a rattling vent from the air conditioning or a you know sort of strange um, exhaust sound for the bathroom or you know whatever it is uh, something that would you know read well in the mid-range and high frequency area and then we also made a, a, a rumble for each room as well so each room would not only have a high sound but it would also have an accompanying low sound so uh, that was that ended up being kind of a big a crucial element in the mix was we ended up we did our first pass we kind of did a quick pass to play it back for JJ and Dan and one of the things that JJ reacted to was that it didn't really sound big enough and full enough and expensive enough for him and I think he, he there was a desire to make the film uh, feel a little bit bigger than it was um, partly I think because everybody had sort of realized that Paramount had done such a good job marketing the film that it was feeling like a bigger event type film. Um, even though most of the film, you know, the first five reels of the film takes place in a bunker and it has a big, you know, sort of large scale ending, but the body of the film is, is actually, you know, quite contained. So it was then about trying to figure out like, how, okay, how can we make the sound bigger and, and, you know, for lack of a better term, more expensive. And uh, one of the things that, that seemed to do the trick is, is literally just adding more bass. Like we added a, a hell of a lot of, of low frequency airs and rumbles and tones um, throughout the whole film. So you, the whole time you're in the bunker, there's sort of a oppressive kind of sound pressure that's coming at you from the movie. And, um, and then we played around with taking it away at certain times so that that would have a subconscious effect on the on the, the viewer you know for example there's a moment in the film when um john goodman does something very bad some you know, one, of the, one of the other characters and we we artificially lowered all of the sort of room tone and the heaviness of the air to make it very light and very and almost delicate and intimate So that when this sort of explosive thing happens, it's it's even more shocking. Uh, and you know that's that's sort of you know it's kind of mixing 101 in a way. It's you know it's dynamics, it's contrast, it's trying to use all those tools in our little toolbox to to make the film as punchy and 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 as dramatic as possible. Um, but it was also one of those things that it it did. You know, you take those sounds away in the film, if you're not careful, starts to feel like, you know, three people on a soundstage. Um, so that's definitely one of those things where when people saw the final mix, a lot of people re reacted. People that had been working on the film for a long time, they're like, wow, it really, you know, finally feels like a movie. It really feels, you know, like, wow, it feels like a real movie, you know. And that's always such a fun thing to experience is when people really see what we can do with a film you know how how much we can add to a film uh, in just a few weeks with sound that um you know you you as a casual viewer you sort of read into it as being like this world is bigger the you know the sets are bigger the you know the whole experience of the film is bigger because you're hearing these things that are outside of what you're seeing 
and your imagination is filling in the blanks. Well, something that came to mind I want to add in here is there's people talking through walls. There's voices in other rooms. A lot of times uh, John Goodman's character Howard is, you know, in like the kitchen or something. And, you know, the Michelle character is trying to do something without him knowing. And like very much perspective and space played into so much of kind of the storytelling aspect. Was this stuff that you guys were imagining just because of the script or how much of that was choreographed once you guys got onto the stage and started working with the tracks? And, and how was the production tracks? Well, I guess it was a little bit of both, uh, just how they had it in the edit. But then when we did go on the stage, it was almost the same thing where we played with the uh, reverb in the different rooms uh, just to, you know, give each its own distinction, you know, knowing when she's in her room and when uh, Emmett or, you know, when one of the characters is in the hallway or, you know, in the kitchen doing things. Um, But another fun thing was uh, John Goodman, like, his breathing mm-hmm. <laughs> was also like a character in the film. And we really played it up because that's just, you know, it's just how, you know, uh, he was uh, when they were shooting. And it was, it was really great to like keep that in the film and make it its own thing. And just hearing him, you know, down the hall with just like his whole movement and everything was great. There's nowhere to go, Michelle. I look through you all. Given us how I saved your life, I think that's acceptable. You're lucky to be here at all. Yeah, I mean, something that really struck me, and I think I felt it just in the audience, was we, we were talking about, Will, with the dynamics, when it did get quiet. I mean, even me, like, you know, you don't want to look at the screen. You just want to kind of look away and close your eyes because of the tension that you guys were creating. How many of those opportunities did you guys really create that weren't expected or you know how much were the dynamics played with once you guys started to see picture really i think when i think of that stuff the first thing that comes to mind is you know the beginning of the film with the the car crash okay um so you know the the uh the idea of cutting to uh title cards in the middle of this scene came about and uh you know we were talking about you know what are we going to do we're going to like maybe it'll be sound effects and then big music underneath the title and then back to sound effects and and vice versa. And, you know, we, uh, luckily, you know, we were able to kind of set that tone with that sequence of, uh, of dynamics. During the premiere of the film, actually, uh, it was one of the uh, <laughs> greatest moments. Um, uh, I realized in that moment, in that silence, when you're watching the film with a big audience, that silence will never really be a true silence. Um, it's kind of filled with uh, the reactions of the audience. And uh, and it's funny, uh, Bear McCreary came up to me after the premiere and he was like, uh, you John Cage, 33, 333 and a third of them, you know, like <laughs> the silence is the thing. <laughs> and it was like, wow, you know what? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, so that kind of set the tone for that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, there, there are moments where we, we play that up even more with sort of jump scare moments. So all that stuff was kind of built in, um, and once we kind of showed the audience in the beginning of the film, that's the kind of stuff we're going to do, it all kind of came out of that and felt natural. Yeah, I think something that you guys were saying is, you know, this is a lower budget film, but it had a larger budget feel. 
Uh, and I think that's partly to do with the script and the acting and the performances. But then sound in a way, it can only have a smaller budget feels because you have, maybe you have less time. You have, you know, you can't, you can't put as much energy into this. So how do you guys describe the fact that maybe this was a lower budget film, but yet you're still able to achieve a level of sound that I think rivals any other type of film? Well, you know, the whole thing with sound is the cheapest production design you can buy. The, the, the cheapest way to make your film feel big and expensive is to spend just a little bit of money on the sound. And uh, we didn't have a big budget or a big crew by any stretch. I mean, really, the majority of the work was done by Robbie and Lindsay. And then uh, uh, Craig Hennigan and myself came in at the end to help out a bit and to, to mix the film with, with Lindsay. And um, I mean, really, that's it. That's the whole crew yeah. uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Our mix tech, Luke, uh, kicked in quite a bit of help at the end oh, just yeah. to give us, get oh, us yeah. over the hump. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I mean, that's it. I mean, really, the, it's, it's most, the, most of this film was cut by two people. Um, yeah, the so, one thing I would say that we had an advantage with was uh, the schedule. We, it was quite a long post-production schedule. So, you know, I had a lot of time to sit in the temp realm of things mm-hmm. and explore. And that was very, very helpful for sure. You weren't trying yeah, I mean, at that point, it's not really, even really a temp. It's just sort of a, it's a long evolution process. Yeah. What can you say in terms of, I mean, I'm sure all you guys have worked on larger crews and, you know, bigger budget films. What's the difference for people, you know, to understand what, what this allows for you guys to do creatively and just, I think, because there's a small less people to have to communicate with? Well, for me, I, I'm actually not used to working on uh, large crews. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't experienced a lot of that. So I, I don't really know how it is on the other side of the curtain so much, but I can just tell you that, you know, once the crew expanded out, and I, you know, we had Will and and Craig. Uh, it was just a, an amount of uh, an immense amount of pressure that was taken off, and um, you know, because uh, a lot of these things uh, are very subjective, and it's and it's very difficult to kind of do them alone. It's very helpful to have somebody in the room you can turn to, and you know, trust uh, that they're gonna you know give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down, and you know, be right. So, you know, I can't really comment on the other side of it, but uh, it was just a great relief once uh, we had uh, some collaborators. I think the, the, the long lead, um, you know, long lead evolution sound design thing can be, it, it has huge upsides, and I'm generally a huge advocate of it, but there's also this thing where the directors and filmmakers can, can get almost bored of a sound, oh, okay. you know, a sound, a sound that they, they loved for six months and then it's in the final mix and you go, that's cool. What else you got? It doesn't hit as, as well. Yeah. They want it to hit differently. Yeah. Cause it's not fresh. It's not, you know, it's not the, you know, new. Um, and you know, I think the, the a huge upside of that is that there isn't a whole bunch of new stuff in the mix that they've never, ever heard before. Um, because that can be very jarring for filmmakers when they haven't had a chance to really go through and get accustomed to new sounds. You know, they get used to the rhythm of the, of the sound that they have in the Avid and, and um, you know, they're maybe not so eager to, to totally change it. So in this case, it was great because Robbie had already done all this work that they had been listening to for months. And then it was really just the, it was the stuff at the very end of the film that really needed a, a, a big step up because the visuals were changing so fast um, so that's where Craig and I were able to come in and I think help Robbie, you know, get it over the finish line because, you know, at a certain point as well, I mean, uh, Robbie, I don't know how you feel about this, but as a creative person, I, I feel like you can run out of gas, you know, you can sort of hit that point where you've go, well, you know, shit, I used, 
these are my three best ideas. Like I'm kind of tapped. Like I, you know, I need another, I need, I needed fresh blood. Um, and so sometimes it's good just to even have a new, a new person just around to say, Hey, what if you tried this? What if you tried this? You know, and just to get your gears grinding again. Well, what, what I was going to ask you is like, when did, uh, Bear McCurry's music come in then? How late or how early? Uh, Bear, Bear's music, you know, didn't come in, uh, early by any means. Um, uh, it was all basically, we were hearing, you know, it on the stage for the first time, really. I mean, the, the content of the music was, uh, you know, Dan and JJ and everyone knew what was there, but as far as us having it in the mix to, you know, design our sounds up against, uh, that, that was a luxury we couldn't really afford. And then, so, you know, we were getting the music up on the stage, you know, uh, they seemed to, I mean, work really well together. I don't know how much it was intentional or not. Was it reactionary once? Well, I mean, I got to say that all is Bear. Bear is like the sweetest, nicest, kindest. He's so fantastic. And, you know, we had spotting sessions and we would talk about, you know, oh, like Will was saying earlier, the weight to the room. I would be like, you know, this scene, I think we, we're going to really want to lean on some of that low. And so Bear would be like, okay, cool, no problem. I'll keep my stuff kind of out of the lows for that moment. Uh, so there was a lot of communication and, and openness, and uh, there, was a, there was a complete understanding from the very beginning uh, that we all need to work together and we needed to have moments hand off to each other. And so, you know, there was, there was a lot of communication back and forth between Bear and myself, and, and it was just a pleasure. I think it worked out really well. How was it mixing his material? What, what ended up on the stage? How big of an um, orchestra was he working with? Uh, there was, you know, layers as usual, right? Lindsay, what do we have there? I can't remember anymore. Uh, we had a full orchestra, um, uh, quartet, and, uh, some, like, cello strings that were mostly featured, but also, like, um, some fun elements like the tambour, which, uh, is the first instrument you hear. The blaster beam. And, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. there's the blaster beam. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, um fun music and it was completely different than what we had in the temp and so you know in, a, in the first pass of the the mix you know it was you know very like much much lower than what we ended up with and i'm really happy with how um bold the music feels in the movie and it's yeah you know, i'm really happy with where it ended up but yeah it's a full orchestra and big sound i was gonna say that's something that jj really pushed us to do is to you know he wanted the music to not be timid right he wanted us you know to let it be big when it wanted to be big and one of the things that Lindsay and i both had fun doing was uh deconstructing some of the cues because bear gave us a lot of a lot of layers to play with and he was very he wasn't precious about about anything you know to the point that we felt like we had a lot of latitude to go in and, and, you know, okay, let's drop this part here. Let's feature this thing here. You know, the, the, the fun thing for me in the mix was that we, we did have that quartet, which was more of a close mic kind of sound. And then we had the full orchestra behind it. And there was times when we, we were so bold as to, we completely dropped the orchestra and just really pumped up the quartet. And it ha- and he had a lot of sort of rhythmic stuff, like chuggy, almost like, heavy metal kind of sounds, you know, kind of thing. And uh, that really worked it in our favor in some places because we were able to 
really gear shift the music. And um, with you know, when you have a movie, especially the real six, the big finale, that has just so much music, it's pretty wall to wall. It's um, it's very helpful to have that sort of control to be able to, to build in as much contrast to the music as we possibly can, so that it stays fresh, and so you you really feel the twists and the turns as we as we move through the through the reel. Because otherwise, it sort of it can lay there like a blanket, you know, and it stops being effective. I mean, that's the thing. Just listening to the the score by itself without picture or the work that you guys are doing, it it has the the bones of I think what you're talking about of of the size of the the film and the heightened kind of suspense that you guys are leaning into. How much of the pre-production conversations uh, of the intent of Dan and and JJ maybe even ends up, you know, like what's what's the evolution like basically, you know, in terms of where the conversation started and where they ended? How much of influence does it happen over time? Oh, well, you know, the way we, you know, the way we did it, you know, we had an initial spotting session uh, with with, uh, Dan and Bear and uh, myself and then, um, you know, uh, Bear Bear came in with some demos, and uh, JJ and Dan listened to them, and they gave him some thoughts. And then uh, it was really really cool, actually, because uh, I was fortunate enough to be involved in in Bear's review process with JJ and Dan. Um, uh, Bear ended up uh, kind of writing a suite and um, cut it together, some picture from the film, and kind of made a montage of. You know, the, this is the movie. This is how I want it to and be musically. And this is Michelle's theme, and this is Howard's theme, and this is how we're going to feel in this part. And it was all like really, really well put together. And it was kind of a, it was a presentation. And and uh, you know, ever you know, he played that, and we all sat back and we're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of like to the races from there. Everybody kind of knew where we were headed. So I got to say, there wasn't a lot of feeling around in the dark. Um, it was it was pretty much like, you know, Bear initially brought in some demos, we listened to them, gave some notes, and then he came back with this montage, and we kind of knew where we were going from there. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of taking the music apart and putting it back together on the stage the way there often is with big movies. Um, and part of that might be because we had so little time to do it, but but really, I, th- I think mostly it was that JJ and Dan were very happy with the score as it was written. And then it was mostly just about using the mix as a way to bring out as much drama in what we had, um, just in the context of, you know, a full mix versus just music by itself. Um, so yeah, it, it, there wasn't really a lot of sort of restructuring of the music, which, which was hugely helpful in terms of actually getting the mix done. Yeah. What, what, what can I say in terms of like the unique, I guess environment, the working environment that Bad Robot provides, because so much of this film was done in house from visual effects and sound. It, it's it's a very kind of close knit community that has a history. What does that provide for you guys for a film like this that you know maybe wouldn't have the luxuries that could be provided? For me, you know, I've been so so lucky. Lucky, I've I've been here at Bad Robot for almost, for about six years now, and um, I really feel like uh, I've grown up here. <laughs> this place is. Um, it's amazing. I mean, the the tone um, that Katie and JJ uh, set uh, for this place, um, and the way it runs. I mean, it's you couldn't dream of a better situation. I mean, we're all here together as like a family. I mean, I I, I equate it to I equate Bad Robot to like it's like your childhood best friend's bedroom, meaning it's full of your favorite stuff. And uh, his mom is a great cook. We have an amazing chef here, so it's like a real communal 
vibe. And also, everybody is so open, and we're all around. So, meaning, uh, I have a crazy idea. I'll just go knock on the picture editor's door, walk in the room, and pitch it to him. And likewise. And, you know, there's this real uh, sense of, of, of DIY attitude here. And, like, you know, you grab the hammer, I grab the nail, and let's do it. And so, like, that attitude permeates throughout the place, and it really has an effect. Um, now, as to uh, talking about how it is outside of these walls, I'm not sure because I haven't been outside them for so long. Um, but, Will, I mean, you go back and forth. You, you you come into the Bad Robot realm, and then you go out and you do another film, and then you're back again. I mean, maybe you can speak to it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, the, the Bad Robot has this wonderful uh, sense that the inmates are running the asylum. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's... Um, it is kind of like film school. It feels like that. It sort of feels like, you know, there are no rules and you can, you can forget for a moment that you're making huge movies, you know, because the vibe feels more like you're making, you know, like an indie with your friends or something, you know, where it's like they're, you know, the, the, the biggest, the, the version of supervision that we have comes in the form of, people like J.J. Abrams and Ben Rosenblatt who are filmmakers to their core and, you know, are not executives and are not, you know, number crunchers. And that creates this environment that's really all about the movies and making the movie as best as it possibly can be, you know, often at the expense of sleep (laughs) and that sort of thing. But that's also part of the vibe. It's like, it's like working on a bad robot movie is like going to summer camp for, you know, two to six months <laughs> where you don't really leave, but you also don't really want to leave. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always get sad when the Bad Robot movie is over because I know I, I won't be back on another one for a while. And, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, it, it, there's something about the vibe of working there that's it's difficult, but you're also still happy to do it. Uh, and you have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, I mean, it really makes the hard work the easiest part of the job. Right. To put it simply. Yeah, what was one of the unexpected kind of outcomes of this film that wasn't maybe expected, that kind of surprised you guys? Maybe like a standout sound moment for you guys that, that you're most proud of? <laughs> I can I can speak to that. I got one of those. So um, the door, the sound of Michelle's door, uh, the way that has been received is uh, it's just amazing. I mean, very early on in uh, in the... I think it was maybe one of the first times we played the movie for JJ. He was like, love that door. It sounds like somebody's screaming. It's awesome. <laughs> and, um, and, and I got to say, I mean, I wish I could tell you that I cut a woman screaming uh, when the door opens, but that's just the way the door sounded in production. You know, we, we were lucky to have uh, an amazing, uh, and I got to mention them, a uh, team of Foley artists, um, M Studios out of uh, Paris, France. They're just uh, incredible. You know, they, they, they provide a lot of material throughout the film, uh, and they add some stuff in that door as well. But, but that door, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Dan Trachtenberg told me that after the press junk, after the first uh, press screening, the press junk had happened. All the press people were telling him that the sound of the door was the scariest thing, and it made them jump every time. And it's you know it's one of those things that like you would never think that the sound of the door would be remembered. <laughs> the door. There's something about that damn door. That's re- yeah. that's really effective. 
Oh, what about you, Lindsay? Oh, well, I was going to say the same thing because, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I should. We, we all love that stupid else, door. Like any yeah, anytime anybody brings it up, they're like, "Oh my god, that door is so scary." <laughs> yeah. I, I was really yeah. happy with the way the uh, scene turned out when when John. I mean, I guess can we give away a giant spoiler? I guess everybody's seen the movie at this point. Yeah. So when uh, when John shoots the Emmett character, um, mm -hmm. I think uh, that's a really nice moment. You know, it's sort of like, you know, there's it's almost a film cliche now of like, how do you do the whole like uh, Saving Private Ryan? You mm -hmm. know, kind of like I've gone, you know temporarily deaf kind of thing sure and yeah. so now we're at a point where it's been done so many times that the, it's sort of a trope and so there's the how do you make it fresh again you know how do you make it um not feel cliche and i think that that robbie and Lindsay did a great job of of creating that moment with it, it almost it's sort of like a mashup of the Saving Private Ryan idea and like gravity where it's like mm. there's this sort of feeling like you're you're hearing the sounds through her body almost more than her ears. Playing it straight, playing the sound straight would would not let the audience would not let that feeling sink in with the audience the same way. You know, I think you, we are we have to do something there to to help the audience feel like they're in her head a little bit. Um, and and I was really happy with the way that scene turned out. Yeah, so much of the film is is uh, visually and sound sound wise, you know, plays into her POV. So um, you know, everything from her waking up in bed. You know, we're hearing all sorts of weird sounds, and then her her feelings kind of normalize, and those sounds go away. So then, yeah, being inside her head after those moments, um, it was really something that uh, that was born out of the story, and I'm glad that it all it all kind of connected well. Yeah, going back to what you were saying earlier, Will, how some of the the, the ship sounds and the creatures were potentially from the Cloverfield world. You know, some of those early rumblings of when they're underground and they hear like, oh. Uh, the Howard character thinks, oh, these are maybe helicopters. And, you know, was that the actual sound of the spaceship? Was it a helicopter? And then later in the film, how much of the other alien kind of sounds were a mixture? Well, you know, um, Dan had some pretty specific thoughts about that. Dan and JJ both. Um, you know, I think for Dan, uh, it was important that they would read, you know, both ambiguously, but then also that if you were going to read into it at all, you would think that's a helicopter or that's a car or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, cause for him, you know, the whole thing was very meticulously plotted out in terms of, um, letting the, leading the audience down one path, but then you're actually at another one. And, you know, the whole movie is sort of about you're, you're second guessing yourself the whole time about all sorts of things. Um, so there was the, you know, the big moment when the whole room shakes, there was this, uh, a bit of a debate, you know, about, okay, you know, how much do we want to hear, you know, some of the sounds that we might hear later in the film, or do we want to keep it super ambiguous? And what we ended up on was something that, that I think is very much in the middle, which is there are actually some sounds there that you hear later in the film, but I, I think that most people, because we've treated them with enough reverb and that sort of thing, that 
they, you know, it's hard to really put your finger on. It's the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing, the movie in general, I think rewards a second viewing because you actually see a lot of things both in the plot and, you know, hearing things a certain way, maybe, maybe hear them a little differently next time, but also in terms of seeing John Goodman's character for what he really is. And, you know, it, it doesn't really diminish the film. It actually add, kind of adds to it by knowing there's sort of this other layer going on. That was something that I really loved is just when you think you, you have a, a grasp of what's going on, there's things that counter it and that go completely against it. And sound, I think, I was, I was looking for some more sound cues and I found that like, you start second guessing the sound cues even, which, which I think was a kind of a, a clever. Yeah, there, there was a bit of misdirection going on there. Um, there was, it, he really did want it to feel like uh, helicopters. In that, in that moment when this whole thing is shaking, you know, he was like, you know, it should feel like helicopters. And so we ended up um, even we took even some of the sounds from later, which had a sort of vocal quality and and modulating them. So they had that choppy helicopter kind of sound. Um, so, you know, again, it was sort of it was a bit of a misdirect. So it's like it, it's it is the sound of the spaceship thing, but it's treated in such a way that it has a little bit more of a, you know, choppy helicopter kind of vibe mm-hmm. so it, right. it, it's and, definitely and a little sleight of hand yeah and, and then the, when she gets out of the bunker and she first sees the ship uh she sees it as a distance again in that moment same thing we wanted to kind of you know not flat out tell the audience this is an alien ship she's looking at and it's a monster and it's coming to get her we kind of wanted to play oh my god is that some sort of crazy military helicopter that i've never heard of so, I mean, you know, all these things uh, were really born out of the story. And, and you know, any time that there, there's these sound uh, plot points, in this, it's just so, it's so great for us because we really get a time to tell the story, literally, with sound, which is great. comes to alien vocals do you treat those as effects or as as dialogue well there was a bit of crossover there i mean it definitely all lives on the you know the effects side of the console but i think robbie spent a lot of time making a voice for that creature um yeah you know the small the smaller creature yeah um they're actually i mean it, it's the, the the little guy and the ship are meant to kind of be communicating with each other uh, while the, the the little guys running around um, hunting for her, and um, that material was actually uh, is actually human vocals. It's uh, the uh, the film editor Stefan. Uh, he was on speakerphone with his son, uh, and I have a recording of them talking to each other, and it's over speakerphone, so it's got kind of this fetched quality to it. 
And um, I took that sound and uh, ran through a simple ring modulator. And then, uh, and then it kind of gives this sense of, okay, this creature is kind of like a beast, but there is some intelligence behind there because he's obviously communicating back to, you know, his leader sort of thing. So it, it is a fine line between dialogue and sound effects. And that was a thing that, that I think JJ and Dan were really interested in making a point of is that th this thing wasn't just a, a dumb beast, that it actually had intelligence. Um, yeah. And so it was interesting, you know, that's always an interesting challenge from a sound point of view is to say, okay, how can you take this thing that, frankly, it was animated to be kind of a little bit more of a dumb animal. And how do you take this and, and turn it into something that feels you know, like it actually has something to say, uh, you know, and that it's hunting for her in a, in a not just stupid way, but it has some intelligence. Um, and, you know, so I, on, from a mixed point of view, the creature is sort of, it's, it's obviously organic, but it has a bit of a, like a metallic, uh, you know, skin or however you want to call it. It has it definitely Armor. has a metallic element to it. And so I took Robbie's sounds and I actually worldized them through uh, like a, a metal um, bin uh, to give it sort of a, a metal resonance um, as it's speaking. And I think that it, it helped give it a more distinctive sound um, that, that matched the picture in a sort of weird way. And it also, there's a lot to be said with, for just making something sound weirder, you know, like, well, that's not a sound you hear in everyday life. You know, you might hear, uh, you know, we, we all hear breathing in everyday life. And, and I, Robbie had come up with some really, cool, weird sounds. I don't know even what he used to make them, but I thought, you know, it could be even cooler by giving it this sort of resonance that um, makes it a little more otherworldly. Uh, and I think, you know, again, it's one of those things that the audience hopefully never really thought about because if they're thinking about it, then we've sort of ruined the illusion. But uh, I, I do think it's the kind of thing that adds to the experience of making something feel special and different and weird. And, and I think there's value in all those things. It's, it's amazing. I, I think like a film like this gets the exposure because of having people like JJ and Ben involved. What is it about this kind of like, it's a small film, it's an internal, not internal, but a very close project at Bad Robot. It feels like it's just like the perfect storm for like a, a lot of creative opportunities that maybe you wouldn't have on on a larger crew or larger budget, I mean, or what is it about this best case scenario that re that really speaks to kind of the end product? Well, I mean, for me personally, uh, the faith that was kind of put in me from the top down, um, you know, JJ and people at Paramount and everybody here. Um, I mean, what 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 can I say about it? I mean, I'm 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 so thankful for it. I mean, I don't know a lot of places where um, where something like this could happen. Uh, I often think that uh, sometimes that some of the things we do here, nobody else, <laughs> nobody else really does it that way, and that's the beauty of it because it allows for these opportunities that you wouldn't normally have. Um, you know, I couldn't, I wouldn't be anywhere where I am, or we wouldn't have the product that we have without the crew and and everybody else. And you know, um, I mean, having Will involved is just it's it's amazing, and it's and it's the only way you know you would have the quality that you have is is by having you know these people that are more experienced come in 
and fuse with these people that are less experienced and then you know you end up with this thing that's like very fresh sounding but but um you know is totally uh in the ballpark with uh everything else that's great in the world so it's like it's i don't really know in other places where you know opportunities like these come along i'm really thankful for them i mean Lindsay, what do you think about that well i think it was you know it was like a, a year long process you know uh robbie starting on this and then i kind of came in somewhere in the middle uh helping out and then uh at the end it's like or you know in the last month you know it really all like came together and was you know a great working of course with will and craig and you know our whole team it was yeah it was, it was amazing <laughs> and i'm really really happy with how it ended up any thoughts from you will Oh, I I always have a lot of fun working on bad robot projects. Or, you know, they they take sound seriously as a collaborator at Bad Robot, and um, JJ is just such a huge fan of of sound, and you know that can be difficult sometimes because sometimes he has an idea in his head that he really is fixated on, and it can be hard to uh, you know achieve the what he's looking for sometimes. But you know, it's good to have someone pushing you like that. So it's always, it's always a pleasure to work on Bad Robot stuff. And I had such a great time working with Robbie and Lindsay on this in, in more stepped-up roles than, I, than I've uh, worked with them in the past. And it's, they did a great job. It was so fun to see everything come together on the film and feel like you know, we pulled it off and people really liked it. It's always so fun to see that. I think it's definitely a film that is definitely, like you said, worth seeing a second time. And for those who haven't seen it before, just totally ignore everything that we gave away. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations, you guys, on a great job, and um, go check it out. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thank you.